I'm Rick O'Shea, and welcome to The Book Show. I've spent the week reading Anne Enright's Actress, which is beautiful and exactly what you expect it's going to be, and uh, Emer McBride's Strange Hotel as well, which is her novella. It's due out at the beginning of 2022. Things for you to look forward to next year. In the meantime, coming up, we have a Pulitzer Prize winner. Ethna Shorthall is going to be grilled by the seductively named Between the Sheets Book Club in Glasnevin in Dublin on her novel Three Little Truths. Ethna, how do you feel about that? I'm hoping the name doesn't mean that they read mainly erotic fiction because they will be disappointed. (laughs) (laughs) There's only one way to find out. Uh, And we're going to find out what is the one book that sporting legends Ruby Walsh and Donica O'Callaghan would recommend. We're also going to have book news with Aoife Barry. Aoife, it's been a busy week. It has indeed. And I'm going to have some intriguing news for you about an altar girl and a high priestess in Doolin. So I would definitely stay tuned to hear more about them. And that is all coming up on this week's book show. A Pulitzer Prize and Emmy for the screen adaptation and millions of fans with their own Olive moments. Olive Kitteridge has made author Elizabeth Strout an overnight success after years of rejections, as tends to happen, and learning her craft. The inimitable but not always agreeable Olive Kitteridge returns. Elizabeth Strout, welcome to the book show. Thank you. It's nice to be here. It's almost 12 years since Olive made her her debut. I've heard you say that she just showed up unbidden one day out of uh, your laptop. That's not entirely out of character for Olive to do, is it? No, it's not, actually. When I when I look back and think about it, that's it's exactly something Olive would do. But nevertheless, I was quite surprised. Can you maybe tell us a little bit about how that happened? I was in a cafe in Norway and I was checking my emails and... Honestly, she just showed up. I could see her in her car driving into the marina and um, getting out of the car. Only this time she had a cane. So I realized, okay, she's gotten older. Um, But she was so vivid and she was so olive that I just understood I have to get this down. I have to do this. So there we were. Okay. And here we are. <laughs> in 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 literature, um, we rarely see two things that are on show here. I, I think one of which is the desires of older characters, particularly through through Olive and Jack here, uh, and our heroes or our anti-hero in mm-hmm. in this case aging. I mean, w- with the latter in this, you look at the aging process. It's fairly unflinching. It's fairly it's fairly visceral. Was that important right. for you to to show? Well, it was important for me to write the truth. You know, I'm I'm just interested in getting ordinary lives down in a way that is as um, accurate and truthful as I can do it. And so that was just going to be part of her life. And in terms of her, her relationship with Jack and about, about the, the, the desires that are shown as part of that, I mean, it isn't something that you see very often. In, in, in right. But, but it felt authentic to me as I was uncovering who Jack was. And then I was, you know, I already sort of know who Olive is. And, and I realized that in a way they made tremendous sense, even though they're quite different seeming, that they have a commonality of, of, um, of being honest, basically. I think that's where they can meet. And then when I wrote the line um, at some point from Jack's point of view, it's that he could be himself with her. I realized there we are. That's it. And she can be herself with Jack. And that's no small thing at any age. Or in anybody's life. Exactly. Um, I've heard you say that when you, you write, you have a particular reader in mind mm-hmm. and the process is kind of a, a, dance. a, a dance, a relationship yeah. between you and right. the reader. How does that work? Well, I mean, years ago, I figured out if I could make up a character, I could make up a reader. So I do have an ideal reader. And 
it's not a man or a woman or anything in between, but it's a presence that's very real to me. I think of the reader as somebody who kind of needs the book without knowing that they need the book. And therefore, I owe them the responsibility of delivering to them the experience of something that they can somehow just feel a little bit bigger as a result of having read it. Olive, it's fairly easy to say that she seems very strong and very stern at various points throughout both um, books. But then it's uh, you reach a point where it's almost unbearable to witness the vulnerability that she ends up showing when that vulnerability uh, occurs. Mm-hmm. It, it, like when she, she realizes that, you know, she's, she's essentially failed as a, as a mother. That's very tough to, to see. Right. That's right. And she does see it and um, or she feels that she's failed, which is about the same thing, I guess. But, you know, as the book continues, they they limp along. I mean, you know, he does love her and she loves him. So it's not a matter of not loving each other. It's just a matter of loving imperfectly, I think. Tell me a little bit about the the structure um, of the books, because obviously Olive flits in and out of focus depending on the story that she's in. Why structure them that way? Right, and that started with the first book, um, Olive Kittredge. I understood understood immediately it would be stories about Olive, and then as I was putting the book together, I realized, you know, Olive is an awful lot to take. And if I was a reader, thinking about the reader, I would not want to see Olive's name on every page because she's just too much to take. And then I began to understand how interesting it is for people, we think we know somebody, but we really only know a certain part of them and somebody else knows a different part of them. And that became very interesting for me. And so therefore, I took, um, I backed up and I was able to develop other characters in town who knew Olive in particular ways. And therefore, we could see um, a, even a more rounded, well-rounded view of her from other people in the town who also had their stories. Yeah. Olive has uh, a life on screen um, through the, the the series. She was played by Frances McDormand. I mean, Laura Linney um, played Lucy Barton on right. stage in the Bridge Theatre in, right. in London. How do you feel about your characters appearing elsewhere, about adaptations of your work? You know, it's just such a weird feeling. I mean, it's it's great. I think both those situations, the movie and the play, I, th- I think they were really, really well done. Um, to watch them is weird. Because it's it's a whole different medium, you know. It's just it's just a very odd feeling. But I thought they were really really well done. I've also seen um, readers say one in particular that that her and her friends meet on a Monday to discuss their olive moments yeah. of the week. You know, what is it like then to feel that your character not only has a life elsewhere in 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 other people's fictional adaptations, but literally in the real lives of of, of people? Right, and that's amazing, and that's been so. Um, so surprising for me and wonderful to hear that she's touched people in in so many different ways and and um the people i think the ones that you're referring to were were the least olive like characters i've ever met you know they were so very very different from my sense of olive and yet they were meeting every monday in starbucks to talk about their olive moments of the previous week it was wonderful to hear that People are always fascinated about the writing processes of, of authors that they like. And for some, it is that that they have to sit down for five hours a day in front of a certain window with a certain laptop. For you, it, it seems to be quite different in that you write scenes, you write on right. scraps of paper. Right. Um, how does it work for you in general? Well, I can almost write anywhere. I've always been able to write anywhere, which is weird and, and helpful. Um, but I do, I do tend to... Every day um, when I'm working, try and write scenes. I've started that from a very young age when I was writing 
uh, for only an hour a day at the most when I had that much time. And I realized that if I was writing in a linear way, it got wooden. So I realized, ah, let's just do scenes and have hope they have a heartbeat to them. And then those scenes will coalesce at some point and they will eventually organically something will arise. And that's how I've worked for years. And the other thing I think people sometimes find fascinating about authors that they like is the nature of how they find their voice. Uh, yeah. For some people, that that comes through just sheer attempting to grind it down. For some people, that's through a moment that happens in their life or a change. For you, it seems to have been, amongst other things, doing stand-up comedy and that freeing oh, you as a person. Yes. How did that, that happen? Was absolutely terrifying. Um I had been writing for a number of years and without much success at all. And I kept thinking, I must be doing something dishonest. And I kept thinking, but what is that? I don't understand. You know, I keep trying to write an honest sentence, but I don't know what it is. And I had just moved to New York City and I was interested in stand-up comedy. I'd go to the different clubs and I I understood that we laugh at something that's true. And then I thought, well, what would come out of my mouth if I put myself in that kind of pressure cooker? never thinking I would actually do it. And then I finally did. And, and so I took a stand-up comedy class, and it was terrifying. And every week somebody would drop out, and those of us that stayed had to perform at an actual comedy club. The point is that during this routine, I made fun of myself as a white New England uptight woman because up until then I didn't know that I, I was so white and so New England I didn't even know it until that comedy class and that was very very helpful for me to understand that's who I was and therefore my voice would be that and so so it worked but it was absolutely terrifying Elizabeth Strout uh, thank you very much for being the guest on the first thank uh, you. series of the thank book show thank you so much All of Again is published by Penguin. And if you want to hear that interview one more time, you can on our podcast. It's available wherever you get yours. Right, it is time for you to take over and recommend the one book that we should read in Read It Forward. Hi, I'm Ruby Walsh. If you want a good read, Andrea Agassi's autobiography is fantastic. But even better is the Jimmy Connors one. Hi, I'm Donico Callahan, and because Ruby Walsh is beside me, I thought his autobiography was outstanding. But if you're badly stuck, <laughs> look, he's appalled. Um, my favourite book that I always carry around in my bag is The Winner's Edge by Dennis Waltley. Uh, Whitley, sorry. Um, just like to have it. That good, you can't even remember your man's name. I remember the night. <laughs> it's a great book. Um, you don't have to read the whole lot, just dip in and out of it. It's outstanding. Limerick's Kevin Barry, the brilliant bohemian of Irish literature, is back with his third novel, Night Boat to Tangier. Barry once again is a spellbinder, and from his cauldron have sprung elements of Waiting for Godot, The Sopranos, and Love Hate. You'll laugh, you'll cry, and you won't put it down. Enjoy. I'm John F. D. Nothova, and I recommend The Little Prince by Antoine de Saint Exupéry, as it will enrich your life's journey and is a book for any age for any time. It's a story of yearning and learning, of love and loss, of discovery and remembrance. And in it, you'll find that child you once were and the human being you hoped you'd become. (laughs) 
and keep sending us your read at forwards to bookshow at rte.ie. Irish author Ethna Shorthall has recently published her third novel, Three Little Truths, where she swapped romance for suburban secrets and lies. Ethna, welcome to the book show. Thank you. Lovely to be here. Uh, Three Little Truths is our book club choice this week. Uh, Between the Sheets Book Club in Glasnevin, we're still not sure what they're called that, uh, are the ones who've been reading the book. Um, Maybe, first of all, tell us a little bit about what Three Little Truths is about. Um, Well, it's set on a middle class suburban road in Dublin, Pine Road. And the women of Pine Road have a WhatsApp group, which was ostensibly set up to organise their monthly poker games. But really, it's about all the gossip and keeping an eye on what's going on on the road. And the story is mainly focuses on three characters. There's Robin, who's just moved home with her parents and her four year old son, leaving behind a relationship and generally a life that she's not very proud of. There is Edie, who is married and has her home and is very happy but wants a child and her husband suddenly is reluctant uh, to have one and it takes two. Um, And then there is Martha, who's probably the focus and the most mysterious. She and her family appear on Pine Road overnight. They've gotten their um, kids into the local school, even though the school was oversubscribed, and they're the focus of much Pine Road intrigue. And the school is nearby, the secondary school, and there is a drama up there when a rape list appears on the back of a bathroom stall in the boys' bathrooms. Um, And the principal lives on the road as does the head of the parents association so all of their lives and all these sort of threads are woven together and they're all interconnected but they're told um, interspersed by the WhatsApp conversations of the women on the road who are talking about everyone else. Yeah, before we let the book club uh, have a go at you, I did, I did want to ask, Love in Road 27, Grace After Henry are a certain type of book. Yeah. There is a departure here. There is a kind of turn that's had. And I read you talking about the problems you'd gone through between books two and and book three. It was a bit yeah. of a rough ride. Yeah, I um, I started writing the book uh, that was that I would have called a love story that would have been more in keeping with my first two books. Um, I was probably six months writing it um, and I didn't get past six, seven months maybe. I never got past 20,000 words and usually in six months I would have the first draft done and complete which could be 100,000 words. But I just, I didn't want to be writing this kind of story but I thought I need to give the readers what they want, what they expect, and I need to give the publishers what they want, what they expect. But I, at, one, at some point, I couldn't do it. And so without telling my publishers or agents or anyone else, I just started writing this book, Three Little Treats. And I wrote, I think I wrote the 20,000 words in two weeks. Like it just absolutely flew. It was the book I had wanted to write the whole time. Um, and my publishers weren't delighted um, when I initially told them or my agent told them I was far too scared to tell them myself. Because they, they, they tend not to be when no. all of a sudden you go, I'm taking a slightly different yes, move here. Yes, they want the exact same thing, but even more commercial. That's basically what every publisher wants from every author. But... They loved it. Um, I, my American editor came back first and such such a vivid memory because I was so, so nervous. And it was this time last year and um, she came back and she absolutely loved it and she loved it more than Grace After Henry, which is, you know, had been the book she'd been all about and pushing. And then the UK came back and they loved it as well. And it's done great. Like, it's probably doing better than the others so far. So it worked out. But the thing is, at the time, you don't know if it's going to work out if you're delusional when you take a chance like that. So I'm happy it did. If it hadn't worked out, I probably wouldn't be talking about it. So, And it's a good thing we are here doing that. <laughs> yeah. Um, the book club in Glasnevin, uh, the Between the Sheets book club, here's what they thought of the book. I enjoyed reading Three Little Truths. I found it uplifting, funny and a real page turner. The author created some wonderful varied characters and dramatic situations somewhat exaggerated in parts, but always entertaining. There are some serious issues um, in the book, 
but these are handled with a delicate touch and the reader is never left feeling bereft. I found the book very interesting and I thought the author created a sense of mystery and intrigue which I liked. In my 20s I read a lot of Maeve Binchy and this book has echoes of her style with a modern day twist. All the lies and secrets are weaved throughout the book and this keeps me wanting to read right to the end. The echoes of Mae Binchy thing there, yeah, that got a nod from you. Yeah, yeah. Um, yes, please, I'll take that. Uh, the Mae Binchy and Liam Moriarty are the main comparisons that the book has had and uh, I wish. So, yeah, great. Okay, they have three questions for you. The first one comes from Olivia. You use social media, for example, the Streets WhatsApp group in the layout of the book. How much did you draw from your own experience of these types of groups when writing the story? Well, that one's gotten a smile. Yeah, well, so the the initial um, inspiration was my mum's WhatsApp group and um, because the Pine Road is a version of the road I grew up on that my mum still lives on. And the women on that road have a poker WhatsApp group. Now, they're much nicer than the characters in my book, I must say, in case they're listening, but it's also true. Um, and I that was the inspiration. Like some of the small incidents that are discussed in the WhatsApp group in this book came from that real one, like wheels being stolen off a car in the middle of the night um, or the constant fights over parking or the someone or all the neighbours being convinced that there's a rat infestation on the road because one or two holes were found in the gardens and now they're all banding together to solve it. So that's directly taken from real life. Uh, I bought my first house last year and we joined the WhatsApp group while well, I made my partner join um, because I just can't take all the pinging of the phone. But uh, yeah, and since I published the book, like the, one of the best things about writing this book, and I've said this before, but it's true, has been the amount of people that have gotten in touch and sent me bits from their own WhatsApp groups. Like some of, I thought at times, maybe I'm pushing this exaggerating. I didn't exaggerate enough. Like some of the stuff that people discuss on the neighbourhood WhatsApp groups, amazing. I'd like to write the book again just so I could get it all in. I bought a house around the same time you did. In fact, you yeah. and I both looked at the same house at the same time. Yes, we did. Um, I, I didn't get asked to join the local WhatsApp group. Should I feel left out? Well, yeah, a friend said this to me. He's like, how do I know if there is one? And I was like, oh, I don't know. We were just asked. So um, I guess you need to get talking to the neighbours. Maybe. I always say when people think it doesn't exist, I'm like, or maybe you just weren't invited. But no, Rick, I wouldn't. No, I'm, fe- I'm feeling it's the latter, yeah. sadly. Um, the second question is from Veronica. The book is very visual and the characters are heightened and scenarios are dramatic. I could see all this acting out on the big screen. Did you have this in mind when writing the book? Yeah, it's a question asked of most uh, authors whenever I do events. Yeah, uh, no, I learning from my previous books, I think when if you can pitch a book in one sentence, then it seems like, oh, yeah, that that was made for TV or film. I, I can't really pitch this book in one sentence. So, no, not when I started it, but... Now that I finished it, I think it would work like as a uh, specifically, I don't think it would work as a film, but specifically as a sort of three part miniseries TV drama, because I can see where where they would end. Um, But I didn't see that before, but I can see that now, if that makes sense. Okay. final question in the group comes from Olivia again. Where did the idea of the book come from? Did you come up with a character first or was it the geographical element or was it inspired by an event? Yeah. So which one? Uh, the very initial thing, one was I wanted to use the format of a WhatsApp group to frame a story and I was inspired by my mom's uh, WhatsApp group. Um, but then the story, uh, I had this image, um, which is the first two chapters, I had an image of a woman sitting at her kitchen table and the day just passing her by, the radio playing, never going anywhere. And she's come to the road, but she doesn't want to be living on the road. And we don't know why. And she also uh, has this resentment towards her husband and we don't know why. 
Um, and so that is the first chapter and that is Martha. And I also had an image of a, a younger woman directly across the road moving back in with her parents. And that is Robin and that is the second chapter. And I didn't know how, but I knew their lives would become intertwined. That's Ethna Shorthall. Three Little Truths is published by Corvus. Ethna, thanks for joining us on The Book Show. Thank you. And Aoife Barry is here now for our weekly roundup of book news and events. Aoife, we're going to start in a place that listeners probably haven't visited, but they definitely should, the Seamus Heaney home place. Yeah, absolutely. It's in Balahi up in Northern Ireland. And I haven't actually been there myself, but it's somewhere that's on my list for 2020. But I believe you've been there, so you can testify how good it is. Yeah, I've been there last year and I'm going to be there next year as well. It's a beautiful spot and you should make the effort. And handily enough, there's a lot of stuff actually programmed for the Seamus Heaney home place in 2020. So I picked out a couple of highlights now there's loads of great things so definitely go onto the website at seamusheaneyhome.ie I think you can find all the info there so let's kick off with one on the 25th of January it's a memoir writing workshop so I think we all kind of feel like we all have a story in us so if it's something not necessarily a good one yeah well you never know it could be good or bad stories plenty of bad stories have been written and definitely sold Um, and £40 is all it costs to do this memoir writing workshop with Malachi O'Doherty so he'll basically do a hands-on workshop and talk you through how you can translate your life experience into a beautiful piece of writing on the 1st of February there's a very interesting event um, with Ian Mullaney who wrote Minor Monuments Uh, I don't know if you read that that came out last year from Tram Press. Yeah, and, and this is the this is the event where it's actually got the sounds that Ian uses as part and he talks about as part of the exactly. book as well. So it's a full multimedia experience. Exactly. It's really nice because I think with book events like this, the idea that he's bringing in visuals and sound, because if you haven't read the book, like you're saying, he does record like sound in different places that he goes to. So you get to hear those. You really get to get this picture of these, these places that he goes to. And he explores nature, Alzheimer's disease, he, he you know, his family, all these kind of things. So that's on the 1st of February. It's only £10 to get into that. Then on the 8th of February, finally, Seamus Heaney in translation. Again, that's only £10 to go uh, to this. And you basically have a really interesting discussion about translation and how it works within Seamus Heaney's work. So you've got people like Declan Kybird, Heather O'Donoghue and Rachel Falconer. And they're all going to be talking about this topic. That's on the 8th of February. But definitely head to Seamus Heaney Home Place's website and you can find out all of the great stuff that's happening in 2020 there. OK, what else do we have? So if you haven't been to Molly, which is the Museum of Literature Ireland, that is in Dublin. It's in St. Stephen's Green. You can go on first Fridays from the start of January and it's free from 6 to 8pm. So you don't have to pay any money. You can go in and look at all these wonderful tributes to great Irish writers. I think it's like a really nice idea to make these things as accessible as possible to yeah, people. Yeah, there know? are lots of museums in Europe that, that do that. They pick specific day, days of the week. Um, uh, that, that's a great idea. Yeah, it's lovely. And, uh, you know, if you're a budding writer listening, we already mentioned that there is that workshop happening in the Seamus Heaney home place. But the Doolin Writers Weekend, they've announced what's going to be happening in 2020. And this is always a really interesting event because it's on at the very start of the year. And I think you're kind of brave if you put on an event in January but you're also kind of tapping into that idea of people writing their to-do list you know their New Year's resolutions so if your New Year's resolution is to be a writer you could head here from the 24th to the 26th of January they've got some really interesting stuff um, and I'm going to name out a few things you can tell me which one sounds a bit unusual the first one is a poetry workshop with Jess Trainer. Um, then you've also got a seminar on women in publishing it's got people from Dora Press Salmon Poetry No Alibis Press and then you've got a Sunday Mass celebrated by the High I'm Priestess I'm going to stop you there is it Sunday Mass? <laughs> Indeed it is, and the, okay. high, the high priestess, uh, Susan Tomaselli, and altar girl, June Caldwell, who we mentioned on the show last week as well. I will pay cold hard cash to go to an event where June Caldwell is the altar girl. It sounds so good. <laughs> so I really love that they're just, they have these kind of unique elements going on in Doolin Writers Weekend. So if you go to doolinfestivals.ie, you'll actually find out more about that there. Okay, that's brilliant. And more power to them as well. It is a brave, brave thing to put a put a festival on in January. 100% is. Now, uh, the book, The Tiger Who Came to Tea, is like a classic among 
children's literature and it was written in 1968 by Judith Kerr and we all know it tells the story of a young girl and her mum who were at home one day and it's a bit rainy uh, to go to the park and a hungry tiger turns up at their door and they basically see what happens next the hungry tiger came to tea and it's being turned into a TV programme and it's going to be broadcast over Christmas you've got David Williams who's narrating you have Benedict Cumberbatch Tamsin Gregg and David Oyelowo as well and you've got Robbie Williams who's also got a song to go with it too so it's a little bit of an unusual take on oh, the tiger that seals the deal then. <laughs> exactly so it's going to be broadcast on Channel 4 ahead uh, there on the 24th of December at 7.30 and it's going to be repeated on Christmas Day so I think there'll be a lot of families sitting around the TV watching that because it's going to be very very sweet altogether. And let's finish up with a lovely mention for Niall Williams, the Irish writer in the New York Times. It's so good to see Irish writers being mentioned in these really, you know, great publications. Gets like people across the world reading about them. And his novel, This Is Happiness, which I believe you particularly loved this year. Oh, Lord, yeah. Yes. I, I think with Niall in particular, it's it's not necessarily one of those great success stories with somebody coming out with a first novel. And it's very exciting. Niall has obviously been writing for a very long time at a very high level. Yeah. And to have this particular book get picked up by so many people this year and by the New York Times it's wonderful they describe this book the book is called This Is Happiness and they say Williams has painted a lush wandering portrait of Faha a village back in time in County Clare Ireland Um, and they say that the novel reads almost like an ethnographic study of a village on the cusp of change so you go it calls to mind John Berger's wonderful fictional trilogy Into Their Labours which is also very funny which they shouldn't forget they didn't mention too much of the humour there but maybe they're trying to keep it quite serious because they're very into the Irish history there so that's great you can head to New York Times their book section you can read that and it's a lovely nod I think it probably caps off a great year for Nile Williams. So that's all the book news I have for you this week. Brilliant. Thanks Aoife. We'll see you next week and that is it for this week. You can listen back to anything from this show and previous episodes on the Book Show podcast. It's available wherever you get yours. You can also find out more book news during the week at rte.ie forward slash culture and you can continue the discussion by searching for The Rick O'Shea Book Club in Facebook. The Book Show is produced for RTE Radio 1 by Ojo Productions.